I mean, every day the heartbreak, and I hate we hate to start you off with the heartbreak, but um, this is at least a good moment, right? Hi guys, good morning everyone. That was the moment a baby was saved after 65 hours under rubble in Turkey. So we're glad to have you, but sorry that we have to report on such sad things. We're going to take you live to Turkey in just moments. Also this morning, Democratic Senator John Fetterman, he suffered a stroke on the campaign trail, remember? Well, he is in the hospital right now. Details on what happened and his condition at this hour. Also, it was not flagged as urgent what a new timeline just revealed about what U.S. intelligence knew before that Chinese spy balloon entered U.S. airspace. Also today, President Biden is headed to Florida to tout his agenda as Florida Senator Rick Scott is going on offense over his Social Security and Medicare plan. We're going to speak to the Florida senator live in a few moments. We're going to begin with this news that's in overnight. John Fetterman rushed to a hospital. Doctors are making sure that he didn't suffer another stroke after he felt lightheaded. Fetterman survived a stroke last May while he was on the campaign trail, but he stayed in the race and ended up flipping Pennsylvania's crucial Senate seat for Democrats. Let's bring in now CNN's congressional correspondent Jessica Neen live on Capitol Hill. Jessica, what is going on? What's the latest on his condition? Well, good morning. Let me catch everyone up to date. This this news coming in just before midnight last night, so really developing overnight. We do know that Senator John Fetterman remained in a Washington, D.C. hospital overnight as they checked him out. The good news is his, his office is saying that there's no evidence of a new stroke. Let me read you what they put out last night. They said, toward the end of the Senate Democratic retreat, which was happening here in D.C., by the way, Senator John Fetterman began feeling lightheaded. He left and called his staff, who picked him up and drove him to the George Washington University Hospital. Initial tests did not show evidence of a new stroke, but doctors are running more tests, and John is remaining overnight for observation. And Don, as you mentioned, just to take everyone back to last spring, that's when he was running in the primary in Pennsylvania. He suffered that stroke. He was in the hospital for several days, longer than a week. That's actually when he won the nomination. Uh, He had a defibrillator put in, and it was something that was very noticeable on the trail as he recovered. Uh, He would talk about how he would miss words. He would slur words. He had those auditory processing issues. And we've seen him now up here on the Hill. Of course, I was following his campaign in Pennsylvania then. I've seen him now up on the Hill recently, uh, and he has been coming and going as normal. But they do uh, still use an iPad sometimes or or technology to help him understand. But again, the bottom line here, guys, is that he will remain in the hospital as they run these continuous tests that he was feeling lightheaded. But so far, no evidence of a new stroke, which is, of course, uh, good news. And everyone wants to keep it that way. Yes, we're going to continue to follow, and Jessica will be reporting. Thank you, Jessica. Mm-hmm. And joining us now is Dr. Chris Purnell, a public health physician and a region at large for the American College of Preventative Medicine. Good morning, doctor, and thank you so much for being here. I think the first question is, what does this lightheadedness that John Fetterman, Senator Fetterman, has reportedly experienced indicate? Is there a greater cause, given his medical past, for concern here, do you think? Good morning, Caitlin. So it's very important for everyone to understand the prevention uh, methods or steps that we can take to keep people safe and healthy. And that's being able to recognize the signs and the symptoms of a stroke. Those classically are things like sudden numbness, um, weakness in a particular part of the body. You may see a drooping. You can have sudden loss of memory or confusion and slurred speech. Lightheadedness is more of a general or vague um, symptom. It's not necessarily specific to a stroke, but it makes you want to ask questions because 
between one in four persons, I mean, excuse me, and people who have had a stroke, at least one in four of them have had a stroke previously. So you want to make sure he's not having something called a mini stroke or a TIA. There are lots of questions that can be answered. Um, it's good to hear that on initial tests and initial, most likely a CAT scan, that there was not evidence of having another stroke. Um, well, let's get the statement in. The statement released that, that I want to ask you about it here, because usually someone's lightheaded, right? It, you don't really send him to a hospital, but because of his medical condition and because it, they, he didn't really release the medical records, there was some mystery around it. Um, the office is saying that initial tests did not show evidence of a new stroke, but doctors are expected to run additional tests. So what should they be looking for in the doctor? So you want to see, has there been additional or new injury to the brain? Um, in a stroke, uh, we sometimes in the medical field call that a brain attack. Um, in an ischemic stroke, which is a type of stroke that Senator Fetterman had in the past, you have a blockage or a clot in a blood vessel that causes brain cells in the area of the distribution of that vessel to die off. So on CAT scan, you're wanting to look for, are there any brain cells? For neurons that have died off is there a region of the brain that has been impacted there are additional studies that can be performed uh, such as an mri that will allow you to have a more described and detailed view of what may be happening inside of his brain yeah all right he was and it was at the state of the union i mean we saw him you mentioned that he was we saw him with dana right dana was sitting right there as all the senators were coming in and she asked him you know his thoughts on his first state of the union address um but obviously this is a, a big issue for concern i'm sure for his family and as well yeah the fact that doctor the fact that he was out at the state of the union and doing well does that say anything i mean could this just be something that is i mean i get lightheaded sometimes if i stand up too quickly you know what i mean but i don't have an underlying condition like that Right. So, Don, we don't know specifically, right, what caused that lightheadedness. Like you mentioned, you can get lightheaded if you haven't eaten. You can get lightheaded if you have rapid um, changes in your position. But you also can get lightheaded if you're having some type of cardiovascular event or a neurological event. And we know that the senator has a history of cardiomyopathy and atrial fibrillation. He has had a past ischemic stroke. So it's something that would cause you to say, let's get him to the hospital and let's get evaluated. But the most important thing for everyone else to understand is to know fast, to know if you see a person with atrial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulties, it's time to call 911 and get that person evaluated. All right, doctor, thank you so much for that. We'll obviously stay in touch with his office and see what those additional tests show today. Grim reality is starting to set in as the staggering death toll continues to soar in Turkey and in Syria. We are still seeing these remarkable rescues. This is a boy pulled out of a collapsed building in Aleppo more than two days after that catastrophic earthquake. But time is running out to try to find survivors. More than 17,000 people are now confirmed dead. Hundreds of thousands are homeless, and it is freezing cold in devastated areas. Our Nick Payton Walsh is witnessing all of this catastrophe firsthand in, in Antakya and Salma Abdulaziz is live in Istanbul at an aid distribution center. Nick, let me begin with you first in terms of what you're seeing again. You've been on the ground for days now and they're still rescuing people. Yeah, but unfortunately, the rescues are sadly of those we've seen so far this morning in Antakya. One of the biggest population centers hit the rescues are of people who've already perished. Just now over there, an eight-year-old girl brought out on a blanket, a rush of excitement that possibly she might have been found alive. Uh, but no, sadly, 
her mother distraught and bodies brought out here behind me. Three loaded onto a van just in the last hour here. The time is running out, may have run out. Desperate moments of possibility for rescuing people. But as we saw, uh, when dusk fell near the epicenter of the town of Cameran Marash, uh, a lot of that hope is dwindling fast. It is hard to imagine how this rubble gave anyone hope. Yet for 50 or so hours after the quake, it almost did. And when it stopped, when the chances of surviving ebbed, the bodies so near the epicenter here kept coming. The paralysis of grief. When these two parents see their eight-year-old daughter's red hair blood-stained. Another four-year-old girl with no parents here to bury her. Another father simply walking behind. There's been constant intense activity, desperately trying to save lives, but we are sadly now into the window where so many of the ambulances that arrive will likely be taking away people who've perished. Up high, hope is strongest, digging furiously by hand here. On the other side of the rubble, medics rushed forward, throwing fury at how nothing here came sooner. The stretchers here too late return empty. Another body pulled out of a Syrian refugee in his 40s as the excavations gain pace. An audience of agony watches, waits. A hospital volunteer told us over 300 bodies here are unclaimed in the morgue. The numbers rising fast along with tempers. It is chaos, and whether any government could have moved faster was the question dogging Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan when he flew into town briefly. This stadium suddenly home to possibly thousands for who knows how long. Many refugees from Syria now perhaps losing their homes for the third time. That's nearly as many years as some have been alive. They have nothing but the state's generosity to rely on, which for now means 12 people in this tent. For now, the question is what they could have done to not arrive for so many entombed here too late.
Now, there is anger here at the government's initial slow response. Certainly, that's something that they've almost accepted on a state level. But also, too, at the man who built this house. Why is it collapsed when so many around it are still standing? And at, frankly, a government culture here that has enriched people so heavily through construction where building regulations clearly are not always met. That will continue to grow as the death toll does in the days ahead. But the devastation here in Antakya, absolutely devastating. I'll never forget the wails of that woman in your piece, uh, Nick Peyton Walsh, in Antakya, Turkey. Thank you very much. Uh, look at the rescue efforts here with um, Nick Peyton Walsh. Also, Selma Abdelaziz is in Istanbul, where a massive effort is underway right now to deliver aid to countless earthquake survivors. Selma, take us through it. What's going on where you are? I'm at this bustling distribution center, and this is all about Turks helping Turks. And I want to just show you around here. It is an absolute hive of activity. You are looking at hundreds of volunteers here, and they're packing boxes with whatever people need in those earthquakes. So you can see baby goods there. They have food. They have sanitation kits. They're packing them as quickly as they can. And remember, everything you are looking at in these boxes, this is toothpaste, a, a, a basic kids here, toilet paper. Remember, those people in that earthquake zone have absolutely nothing. So they're trying to provide the basics here. And everything you're looking at has been given by an individual or a business. There's a real sense of solidarity. And we've spoken to these volunteers, and every single one of them says the same thing. We could not sit at home and just watch people suffering and not do anything about it. It. I know it looks like chaos, but it's actually organized chaos. You can see loudspeakers over there. That's how they're shouting down orders, letting this man pass through. If you want to just follow me a little bit further here, you'll see that this huge hangar, this is where they stack the boxes. They load them onto trucks straight at the end of the hangar, and then they go from here and they drive straight to the south of Turkey to try to help those affected people. We've seen, uh, I don't know how many trucks, but it seemed almost every hour a truck was going out helping the affected on the front line. Everyone here says, look, we're so happy that the international community is stepping in, but it's important, it's important for us to step in too. Salma, thank you for showing us around. I mean, it, it's just awful, this huge, huge, massive effort that's underway in Istanbul. We appreciate you joining us. We'll get back to you. All right, two days after delivering his State of the Union address, President Biden is taking his economic message on the road fresh off that delivery on Tuesday night. Today, he's going to be in Florida. Yesterday, it was Wisconsin, where he did something he did not do on Tuesday night, named the Republicans that he accused of wanting to target Social Security and Medicare, something he had avoided doing. All of this as the president is laying the groundwork for an expected 2024 run. At any rate. You'd be 82, date of the next election, 86, if you're successful and elected and finish that term. Does it give you any concern? Watch me. <laughs> That's all I can say. Look, I'm a great respecter of fate. I would be completely thoroughly honest with the American people if I thought there was any health problem, anything that would keep me from being able to do the job. It sounds like you're running. I've made that decision. That's my intention, I think, but I've made that decision firmly yet. CNN's MJ Lee is live at the White House with more. MJ, you know, we're expecting him to make that decision. He hasn't made it yet. What's the sense of why not? 
Well, Caitlin, every expectation right now is that the president will be making a re-election announcement in the coming weeks. The people around the president are operating as such. And to that end, we are going to see the president hit the road again for his post-State of the Union tour, uh, heading down to Florida to really focus on the issues of Social Security and Medicare. And this is going to be a really interesting space to watch. You know, you saw on Tuesday night how when he uh, accused Republican members of trying to make cuts to those programs, uh, the speech got really rowdy. He was being heckled. He was being called a liar. Uh, and uh, this has emerged already a key issue in the beginning talks of raising the debt ceiling. You know, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, even though he's not a put a, a specific proposal on the table, the one thing that he has said is that cuts to Social Security and Medicare are off the table. So White House officials have been saying they do believe that this is an issue that is striking a nerve with Republicans. And they do think this is going to be a winning contrast for them as they do prepare for that 2024 run. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating day to see him in Florida, not just where Rick Scott is, but Ron DeSantis, former President Trump as well. MJ Lee, thank you so much. And ahead, Senator Rick Scott is actually going to join us here on the program as President Biden is heading to his home state. His response to the president calling him out in his State of the Union address. I think it's pretty much said when he goes, that is my intention. I think that means he's going to run, don't it's you It's kind think? of interesting he hasn't, yeah. though... We're, our sense right now is it March or April, but uh, the sense had been that he would make the final decision while over the holidays while he was at home with the family. So it is notable they've delayed it yeah. a little bit. That is my intention, but I have not. Been. He's going to run. I mean, come on. It would be shocking if yeah. he doesn't. It's, ma- it's stressing me out, by the way. Did you see my new stress ball? <laughs> <laughs> I, did I need a, this. I did a speaking engagement in... Um, uh, day before yesterday at uh, Farmingdale, thank you, SUNY Farmingdale, and this was my one of my it's little 11. gifts. And I was like, so "Oh, it's cute. nice to have it here." Thank you. <laughs> I was like, "Hey, kids, I hope this isn't like a tracking device." But <laughs> so Santa called. Thank you, squishy. students at Farmingdale, SUNY Farmingdale. It was great. All right, coming up, a fascinating <laughs> development in North Korea. Who will be Kim Jong Un's successor? The North Korean dictator just gave the world a strong hint. And a forensic scientist revealing that she discovered what she discovered on Alec Murdoch's clothes and hands from the night that his wife and son were murdered. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un appears to be grooming his young daughter to be a successor. The girl is believed to be Kim's second child. She's about nine years old. She was also spotted with him at a military parade of intercontinental ballistic missiles in Pyongyang. You'll remember that. Our Paula Hancock joins me now live in Seoul, South Korea with more. This, the big question is, why is he putting her out here, out there multiple times in just a matter of months, right? Yeah, pop- Exactly. This, we believe, is the fifth time that she has been in public. And it's certainly the first time a North Korean leader has taken a a daughter or a son to one of these military parades. And also another first. It's the first time that we have seen so many of these biggest ICBMs on display. Missile after missile rolls through Pyongyang's main square Wednesday night. Its biggest intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-17, presumed capable of reaching mainland United States. No speech from leader Kim Jong-un this time, but this many ICBMs are a message in themselves. They've now gone into a good production line of this very capable, threatening missile system. And a mock-up of a new solid-fuel ICBM, which makes it quicker to launch and easier to move. It gives them more mobility, flexibility, 
lethality and so forth. Kim Jong-un told the world he wanted a bigger and better nuclear arsenal. And judging from these images provided by state-run media, that seems to be exactly what he's doing. Another first, the military parade was a family affair. Kim's wife and daughter were watching the missiles roll by. Believed to be called Jue, maybe nine or ten years old, this is the fifth public event for Kim's daughter since November, the only one of his children to be shown in public. Fueling speculation, he may be grooming her for succession. In order to seize power in North Korea, gaining control of the military and their loyalty is the most important thing. So I think that's why Kim Jue is mainly accompanying Kim to military-related occasions. Kim Jong-un's message has been, we will strengthen the military and we will be ready for war. Now, in keeping with the military theme, we also saw Ri Sol-ju, Kim's wife, wearing what appeared to be a necklace with an ICBM on it, so a fashion nod to the country's most powerful weapon. Poppy. Wow. Paula Hancock, thank you very much. Up next, appalling video shows at least two Philadelphia high school students spraying a young girl in the face with black paint while shouting racist comments. All right, testimony is expected to resume this morning in the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch. Prosecutors are now focusing on a critical piece of evidence that was found at the home of Murdoch's mother on the same night that his wife and son were fatally shot. Let's go to CNN's Randy Kay, who is live in Walterboro, South Carolina, where this court proceeding, this trial has been underway. Randy, what's the latest evidence and is it damaging for the defense? What are they saying? Good morning, Caitlin. We're talking about a big blue raincoat that had a lot of gunshot residue on it. Prosecutors seem to be suggesting that Alec Murdoch used that to wrap up the murder weapons and then dispose of them. But the defense did a pretty good job of poking holes in that theory. Here's what happened in court. This jacket is the jacket I examined. She's talking about the rain jacket that was discovered stashed in an upstairs closet at Alec Murdoch's mother's home. It was found months after the murders of his wife, Maggie Murdoch, and their son, Paul. Megan Fletcher, a gunshot residue expert for the state, told the court she found a significant amount of gunshot residue particles on the inside of that jacket. I confirmed 38 particles characteristic. Given that it's on the inside, uh, in order for it to be uh, consistent with transfer, an object or objects with a high amount of gunshot primer residue on it would have had to transfer to it. An object like a firearm, as prosecutor John Metters hinted at with this line of questioning. And you had a gun inside that rain jacket that had recently been fired uh, and you were taking it somewhere to hide it or transport it with the 38 particles inside inside the rain jacket be consistent with transfer from a recently fired firearm. That is a possibility, yes, sir. In his opening statement, lead prosecutor Creighton Waters promised the jury this evidence was coming. The state's working theory seems to be that Alec Murdoch used this rain jacket to wrap up at least one of the murder weapons. And after allegedly disposing of them, he stashed this raincoat in his mother's house a theory the defense tried to knock down. There's no way for you to know when the gunshot primer residue was deposited on the blue rain jacket. That's correct. And you have no idea how gunshot primer residue ended up on that garment, correct? I cannot tell you how it got there. Okay. Or when it got there. 
or when it got there. Alec Murdoch's former paralegal also testified. She told the jury about how he allegedly stole from his former law firm. She also identified his voice on a recording taken by Paul Murdoch on his phone. Prosecutors believe the video was recorded just a few minutes before Maggie and Paul Murdoch were killed, when Alec Murdoch said he wasn't with his family at the dog kennels on the property. Hey, he's got Burgess now. Hey, Bubba. Do you recognize any voices in that video? I do. I hear three voices. Then tell me who you hear. I hear Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. And how sure are you? I'm 100% sure. The fact that she recognized his voice on that video really is key because prosecutors do say the murders took place just a few minutes after that video was recorded. Alec Murdoch said he wasn't at the dog kennels at the time, but now she says he was. She puts him there, and so do three other witnesses. Caitlin. Every day in court gets more fascinating than the last. Randy Kay, thank you for covering it for us. Yeah. All right, so you need to sit and, and watch this one and take it in and try to figure out exactly what is going on here. A video of a racist incident circulating online, sparking protests, and at least two suspensions at a Philadelphia high school. Now, the video, there's, there it is, part of it, shows a girl spraying black paint on another girl's face while making comments referencing Black History Month. So what's going on? Jean Casares joins us. She's been looking at this video, and she has a report on it. So what happened here? Let's just state the facts. Here are the facts. According to the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, three girls are in this video. Two attend St. Hubert Catholic High School for girls. A third girl, she does not attend the school. Now, in the video, a girl is seen spray painting the face of another girl black, throwing around racist insults, all while several girls are watching. They sit by, they laugh. Let's watch a little bit of this. whose daughter attends the Catholic school, told CNN the video was sent directly to his daughter and niece, along with other black students. Now, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia tells CNN the exact distribution is unknown at this point of time. What is known is that the video was taken outside of school, after school hours, and then put on social media. Quote, those allegedly responsible are not present in school. They are being disciplined appropriately. We take this opportunity to be abundantly clear that there is no place for hate, racism, or bigotry at St. Hubert's or in any Catholic school. It is not acceptable under any circumstances or at any time. The statement goes on to say that general threats have now been made against the school community after the video surfaced on social media. They're being reported as they come into the Philadelphia Police Department and law enforcement. They have been on the campus since the video surfaced. Philadelphia's branch of the NAACP expressed in a statement Wednesday strong disappointment in the video and called on the school to, quote, ensure action takes place immediately. I don't really know what to say. I know it's beyond words. I mean, what's the motivation? What's the state of mind? What is, I mean, this is blatantly. Look, uh, you know, 
we've all been young <laughs> at one point. Some of it's closer to, you know, at least for me, to you guys. You've been young, you're younger than I am. But when I was in college, you know, people would do stupid things. People would openly say the N-word. But I thought by the time we got to 2022, 20, 2023, mm-hmm. that things would be different. Um, these kids should know better. They are kids, though, right? And, uh, you know, I want to cut them slack in that they are kids. But their actions are reprehensible. Yeah. And it's not funny. No. And it should not... It shouldn't happen, but it definitely should not be spread. They should know better the consequences of this will last forever. This is going to stick with them forever. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens because, you know, what is their state of mind here? What what are they thinking? And it was done off campus. And we know from a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision of a high school girl that didn't. I was just going to bring up the SCOTUS decision. That's exactly right. What she did not. She didn't achieve cheerleader or something. And off campus, she made a video that was absolutely disparaging the principal and students and, and teachers. And it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they said it's off campus. Yep. Freedom of speech. That's right. It it's a really done. interesting moment in the First Amendment battle over it all was. of this and consequences well, and I, responsibility yeah. just on a legal front. I hope Ron DeSantis is watching and paying attention. I hope that people who are saying that we, shouldn't, we should only teach certain aspects of our history are watching. There's nothing funny about Black History Month because that's what we should be learning, the importance of Black History Month, because these kids think it's a joke. And it's perhaps because... They didn't learn it before they got to college. And maybe they wouldn't be exhibiting this sort of behavior if they actually knew the history of this country, right? And the true history of this country and the importance of at least paying reverence and attention to the black people who helped to build this country rather than making fun, spraying someone and saying, oh, it's Black History Month. Ah, Which goes with the archdiocese is saying suspension, expulsion. You know, we are taking measures. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. You learn all of this. You learn it when you're younger. That's where you get it. Thank you, Gene Cazares. Appreciate that. Former President Trump's ex-lawyer, Michael Cohen, met with Manhattan prosecutors again over the former president's financial dealings. Why he says there is a strong case. President Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, met with prosecutors in New York for the 15th time yesterday. This comes just over a week after The New York Times reported that Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg had begun presenting evidence to a grand jury regarding hush money payments Cohen made to adult film star Stormy Daniels on behalf of the former president during the 2016 election. Cohen says he believes an indictment is coming. Listen. I believe we're on the tarmac, and I believe that... um, Rather imminently, we're going to have takeoff. And eventually, since we're going on transportation idioms here, um, we will be arriving at our destination. And you think that's an indictment of Donald J. Trump? That's the uh, destination. Let's bring in CNN commentator and CNN's host of Smirconish, Michael Smirconish. Michael, good morning to you. Michael Cohen went on to say that he believes this should lead to an indictment. It's not his decision. But I think it's interesting that he said he agrees with Mark Pomerantz, who used to work on Bragg's team, who was on the program with us yesterday, that the DA is ready to do what needs to be done. What do you see here? I don't know if that's the case, but I'm wondering about the political implications. If there were to be an indictment pertaining to the Stormy Daniels case, By the time such an indictment would be brought, it would be seven or eight years after the facts. 
I guess the idea in tolling the statute of limitations is that you can't indict a sitting president and therefore the statute of limitations would be told during that time period. I don't think that's a slam dunk. I, I think there's a legitimate legal issue there to be explored. I also wonder what would be the political impact if this is the only indictment, because as you know, yep. Eric Garland is looking at it, the events of January 6th. You've got the Mar-a-Lago documents, you've got the, the Fulton County investigation. If in the end, it's only the Stormy Daniel case that leads to an indictment. I don't think it harms him politically at all. That could also be taken down potentially to a misdemeanor. Um, and so there are real questions, though, about the political implication, which you asked folks in a poll, right? Would right. it hurt Trump? Well, listen, I'm often, I'm often in the minority on the poll questions that I ask. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that the audience said, yes, it will harm Trump, I think is probably a lot of confirmation bias. You know, people who are against Trump, they hope that it'll hurt Trump. I, I don't know. Didn't we learn a lesson in, in the whole, you know, Clinton 90s about the impact of, of sex on political careers? I think we did. Uh, and, and by the way, there's a part of me that thinks that every time this case gets brought up, Donald Trump, although he may say uh, terrible things about Stormy Daniels, I think he probably enjoys being in the same sentence as her. It's just my speculation. Look at uh, Michael Cohen um, is saying, you know, I told you so. Right. You know, he's been saying I told you so. And I, he believes um, his testimony or at, at least I think investigators believe it as well. His testimony in front of, of, of congressional hearing with uh, Elijah Cummings. Rest in peace, Elijah Cummings. He said that there have been more than 10 uh, investigations and multiple convictions and that the New York AG, Pomerantz, Dunn, Mueller, multiple congressional committees all stated that everything that Michael Cohen told them was truthful, accurate, and relevant to their investigations. So how do you respond to that? Because a lot has come out of his congressional testimony and his involvement with these hush money payments. Don, I like Michael Cohen. I've been a guest several times on Michael Cohen's podcast. He's been a guest here on my radio program. I get a kick out of him. He's a character. I say character in a Philly way, like that's a term of endearment. But he's a convicted felon. And, you know, in the end, how reliable will he be perceived? If the, if the case comes down to Michael Cohen, they better have more than that. Yeah. Well, Weisselberg hasn't flipped. So that's like a key component as well. Yeah. I mean, see. 15 times. They've called him 15 times. We'll see. We shall see. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Always good to have you. You can catch Michael, obviously, on his radio show every morning, but also on his show right here on CNN, 9 a.m. Eastern, Saturdays. After Saturday is going to be the Super Bowl, one of the biggest events of the year. CNN is getting an up-close look at how do they plan to keep everyone safe from the ground to the sky? What do the security precautions for something like that look like? Okay, well, that's going to be the happiest place on Earth, at least for <laughs> one team uh, this weekend. Well, even the happiest place on Earth, though, can't avoid layoffs. Sadly, details on Disney's new multi-billion dollar restructuring plan coming up. This morning, officials in Arizona are ramping up security with Super Bowl 57 just days away. Nearly a thousand officers from several different agencies are going to be working together to protect the game by land and by air. CNN's Rosa Flores is live in Glendale, Arizona with an inside look. What do these security measures look like? Obviously, there are so many people here, a ton of celebrities, officials as well. What do, what do the security measures look like? 
Well, Caitlin, good morning. You know, what law enforcement will tell you is that a successful Super Bowl for them is one where the fans can focus on the game, the halftime show, the food, the fun, where the fans do not even have to think about public safety because law, enforce, law enforcement has done its job. So what type of security measures do they have? Everything under the sun. What are a U.S. Customs and Border Protection helicopter? We're flying about 500 feet. A U.S. Air Force KC-135 Stratotanker. And an F-16 fighter jet doing over Glendale, Arizona. They're tasked with guarding the skies over Super Bowl 57. With nearly 200,000 fans expected for the big game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, security is a multi-agency effort. What types of threats does the FBI prepare for when it comes to the Super Bowl? Yeah, a wide variety. Anything from active shooters to explosive threats, IED threats to bomb threats, suspicious packages. From this operations center, the FBI, along Inside more than 40 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies will use these 360-degree cameras to have eyes on every inch of the stadium. Scott Brown is the federal top official in charge of security. I was in New York for, for 9-11. Um, I've seen the devastating impacts uh, of terrorism uh, on our soil. I am deeply committed, as are all of my partners, to making sure that we don't have an incident like that here. Sky Patrol is in the hands of U.S. Customs and Border Protection Air and Marine Operations. When your teams are patrolling, what could they be looking for? We're going to look for anything out of the ordinary. It could be anything from smoke to disruptions. CBP Air and Marine Operations will be able to fly over the stadium during the big game, but no other aircraft will because the FAA will be imposing a flight restriction that's 30 miles wide. Those flight restrictions will be enforced by NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, with these Air Force F-16 fighter jets. Since 9-11, we've been able to safely escort out any aircraft that's violated restricted airspace. NORAD is taking no chances. This KC-135 Stratotanker is part of the fleet on hand. This aircraft can carry up to 200,000 pounds of fuel. There are 10 tanks on board, including some on the wings. And it can refuel an F-16 mid-air in minutes. So it prevents us from having to return for fuel on the ground. So it's absolutely critical. The fighter jets refuel from a receptacle that's right behind the pilot. And my job as the pilot is just to remain within the basket in a safe, controlled, stable position. If the FAA's flight restrictions are broken, NORAD or CBP Air and Marine operations will engage. The message from law enforcement to anyone thinking about committing a crime during the Super Bowl is simple. Uh, don't do it. You're going to wind up in cuffs. <laughs> now, Caitlin, if the fighter jets, the strato tanker, the U.S. Uh, CBP Air and Marine Operations helicopter is not enough to deter criminals. There's 5,000 other reasons why criminals should not even come close to this stadium is because there's 5,000 public safety personnel that are assigned to this. Some you will see because they're going to be in uniform. Others will be blending in. You will not see them. Hmm, Caitlin? Are we watching that? Didn't see that in the halftime show. Rosa Flores, thank you. <laughs> and coming up on CNN This Morning.
that little face, a smiling baby, pull from the rubble just as the death toll surpasses 16,000 in Turkey and Syria. The race to rescue survivors intensifying by the hour. We're live in Turkey. More CNN this morning to come after the break. I mean, it's, the situation there is, uh, there it's aren't devastating. words. Yeah, I mean, there, there, aren't, there are words, but I don't know if it would describe it. And you think about how many people have died, 17,000 people. Think about that. Good morning, everyone. We're so glad you could join us. We hate to start you your day with terrible news, but what you were just witnessing, that what you just saw, I should say, miraculous rescues, children pulled from the rubble days after a catastrophic earthquake. But time is running out to find survivors. We're going to take you live to this disaster zone as the staggering death toll just keeps soaring in Turkey and Syria. Also this overnight, Senator John Fetterman is back in the hospital. Doctors are making sure he didn't suffer another stroke. We'll bring you the latest on his condition. Also today, President Biden is going on a cross-country blitz after his State of the Union address. The next stop is Florida, and we're going to speak to the state's Republican Senator Rick Scott. He is the GOP leader who President Biden accused of wanting to cut Medicare and Social Security. We're going to begin in Turkey and Syria, where we are seeing dramatic rescues, and time is running out for people still trapped beneath the rubble. It has been more than three days now since the catastrophic earthquake. Here you can see this is a rescue team listening for any voices. Look how quiet they are, right? They're on a pile and they are limiting the sounds and their movement on this pile of concrete so that they can listen to see if there's anyone beneath it. The staggering death toll now has topped 17,000 victims. Imagine that. You're looking at drone video now, the mass burial in Syria. This is a region that had already suffered unimaginable horrors after more than a decade of brutal civil war. The Syrian man that you see right here says that 18 of his family members were killed in the quake. He is holding a white, holding white body bags and waiting outside their collapsed home as rescue teams dig through the debris. Now imagine... This is here in the United States, and 17,000 people were dead. I know it's around the world for halfway around the world for many people, but this is just awful. I'm going to get to our correspondent who's on the ground there, Jamana Karacha, live on the ground in Turkey. There's a lot going on. They're trying to rescue people. They're delivering aid to people. And I see there's a fire behind you. What are you seeing, Jamana? Well, Don, we are right outside Iskenderun port. This is part of Hatay province, one of the hardest hit provinces by this earthquake. And this fire broke out right after the earthquake and it's engulfed hundreds of shipping containers. Now, a couple of days ago, the uh, the uh, Ministry of Defense here announced that the fire had been uh, extinguished. But as we were driving in, we just stopped here because you can see that this fire is still going. You can see this thick black plume of smoke, this ongoing massive firefighting effort we have seen trucks coming in, fire trucks coming in from different cities, from Istanbul, the capital, Ankara, uh, and other cities uh, trying to support the firefighters here. You've also uh, got 
um, uh, firefighting jets that have been taking part in uh, this effort. They have been circling the area, scooping water from the Mediterranean and dumping it on the fires here. We're still seeing these flames popping up uh, behind us. And this has really had an impact here. Of course, it's shut down operations at this point. We've heard from major shipping companies that they've had to reroute a lot uh, of their traffic, suspending operations here for a while. It's a major shipping hub uh, for them. But you can imagine, on this impact this is having on the emergency services here who already have so much to deal with. The city of Iskandarun, and we're headed there right now, we are being told by residents, people who are driving to the city, carrying aid from different parts of the country, that the damage there is extensive and that there are so many people under the rubble and they say not enough rescue crews are on site and you've got hundreds of people camped outside these buildings trying to find out what happened to their loved ones and they're telling us hope is fading uh, right now that they are going to be rescued alive, Don. All right, Jamana, thank you very much. Appreciate your reporting. Also this morning, we have Selma Adulaziz in Istanbul, where there is a massive effort underway to get aid to earthquake survivors. I know, Selma, this is going to be such a big part of this. You talked about the devastation and the recovery, but the fact that these people have lost everything. You're at this aid center in Istanbul. What, are, what does it look like? This is an absolutely buzzing and bustling. It's a hangar, but they've just turned it into this huge center. I'm going to start walking you through because I really want you to get a sense of this space. There are hundreds of volunteers here. They're filling these boxes with things that are coming as donations. Every single thing that you see here has been given by families, by businesses, by residents, people who just want to help. We're just going to keep walking you through here. I know it seems like chaos, but it's actually organized chaos. You can see those loudspeakers over there. That's how they're shouting down orders. There's clothes being packed into these boxes. Everything that's going in here, it's non-medical supplies. Sorry, excuse me. We're going to go around here. And what they're doing is they're putting these non-medical supplies. So think sanitation kits, think clothes for children, think blankets. They're packing it up in these boxes as fast as they can. And then they're taking it right to the end of this hangar here where they have trucks ready to go to those front lines. And every one of these volunteers we've spoken to, they say the same thing. They've told us we couldn't have just sat at home and done nothing. We had to come here and help. A true sense of solidarity. Yeah, you've seen how so many have mobilized to help those people who are so desperately in need. Salma, thank you for being there. We will stay with you and keep checking on those aid efforts. Well, this morning, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is waking up in the hospital. He was kept overnight for observation after feeling lightheaded yesterday. Remember, he suffered a stroke just days before winning that primary race last May. He was off the campaign trail until August and went on to flip a key Senate seat in the face of real questions about his health. Odana Bash actually stopped him just briefly uh, before the president's State of the Union address just two days ago. Listen. Senator Fetterman, Senator Fetterman, are you, what do you think about your first State of the Union? Yeah, just looking forward to this. Yeah. Said he was looking forward to it. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is with us. Sanjay, good morning. So now they're, they're looking, they're observing, they're trying to make sure he didn't have another stroke. Can you explain to us what doctors are looking for? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is obviously one of those things because of his past medical history, if someone complains of lightheadedness, 
uh, you have to be pretty pretty diligent. There's lots of things that can cause lightheadedness, but as you put up there, I just want to just reiterate sort of his his past medical history. Um, it, it's it's pretty significant. Uh, you know, it's back in 2017 that he was first diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. And then it was May of 2022, May 13th of 2022, when he suffered atrial fibrillation, cardiomyopathy, and doctors used a thrombectomy to remove a blood clot. And he had, an, he had a defibrillator and a, a pacemaker, there you go, placed at that time. That was a long hospitalization. It was, uh, you know, he was in the hospital for nine days at that point. Um, what we know is that you know he's had this this significant past medical history, but in October of last year, the doctors released this note. This was just a few weeks now before the election, basically saying he has auditory processing issues, um, but other than that, he's pretty much ready uh, to go in terms of return to work, do the sorts of things that would be required of him as a senator. And now you fast forward to, to this point where he has this episode of lightheadedness. Two things. One is that it could just be lightheadedness, which does occur in people. It can be for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but also, given his past medical history, they have to be very diligent about this. If they're saying at this point there's no evidence of stroke, one thing to sort of point out from that standpoint is that it does take some time sometimes to figure out if someone has in fact had a stroke. What they're saying is he doesn't have symptoms of stroke right now, but I'm sure they're doing scans, they're looking at his heart to see if there's any other problems that are, are manifesting. Sandra, just to remind our viewers, um, it was his primary doctor who came out and said after that surgery that he, you know, was going to be back to being able to do full work. We've never, right, heard from the, the actual surgeons who put that defibrillator in, right? So there are still questions, no? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, th th this was not a, a full medical record release by any means that were received uh, at any point, including in October, right before the election. It was from his primary care doctor. Um, but they, they talked about his overall condition but not specifics about the medications or any other, other, other things that he may have had done. Okay, Sanjay, stick around. We have a lot more to talk to you about in just a minute. And this morning, lawmakers are set to hear from pilots for Southwest Airlines after the unprecedented holiday meltdown that left nearly 17,000 flights canceled and 2 million passengers stranded. The pilots are expected to testify that technology failures were predictable and avoidable and to describe the operation as being held together by duct tape. Gabe Cohen, is our correspondent, joins us now. Gabe, good morning to you. What evidence are the pilots expected to share with Congress? So, Dom, we've obtained the testimony expected from the pilots union at that 10 a.m. hearing, and it includes these stunning messages that were sent by Southwest dispatchers to specific pilots on their cockpit computer, actually onboard flights. And they paint this alarming picture of, of the chaos that was happening behind the scenes. You can see those messages on your screen. In one of them, a dispatchers asked the pilots to identify themselves because it appears the airline didn't actually know who was on board amid all that uh, crew scheduling problems. And the message then ends with a quote, it's a mess down here. Uh, then in another message, dispatchers told the pilots, quote, uh, no updates here. Scheduling is so far behind. We were told we aren't allowed to walk over 
and talk to them. So Don, it just gives you a sense of the confusion that Southwest crews were dealing with. And the pilots union says they've been warning about problems with Southwest system for years. And those warning signs, they say, have been ignored. Now, the airline's chief operating officer, also set to testify, is likely going to dispute some of that, uh, even though the airline is apologizing. We've obtained that testimony, and they're expected to tell senators three key words. We messed up. Uh, They've been handing out those refunds, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Don, they say they have dramatically improved their systems to prevent this in the future. Uh, But you can expect the senators on the Transportation Committee are going to want some more information on that, and and they're going to have some pretty pointed questions. Oh, yes, they are. Gabe Cohen reporting from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Gabe. Poppy? The Walt Disney Company announcing plans to cut 7,000 jobs. That's a huge cut. This is part of a multi-billion dollar cost-cutting effort. And it's despite the company reporting better than expected quarterly earnings, our chief business correspondent, Chrissy Romans, is here. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, We heard the president tout the economy and the State of the Union. And then people open the paper every morning and they see all of these headlines. Is there a disconnect? Well, in tech and media, you're seeing a lot of layoffs. Disney is a kind of a singular situation because Disney, uh, under Bob Iger, who has come back as CEO, wants what he's calling another transformation for the company. This isn't just cost-cutting to weather an economic storm. This is a real transformation of the company into three distinct uh, uh, parts here. You know, you've got Disney Entertainment, which is movies, TVs, all TV shows, all that. ESPN, he wants to emphasize more sports content. And then parks, experiences, and products. And he's giving more creative control to the creatives right. to follow through all the way to the financial Which results what as well. they felt they lost exactly. under the last leadership. Exactly. What's interesting is shares popped yesterday yeah. after the earnings call. Wall Street is cheering this just like they yeah. did in a big way with Meta, Facebook's earnings when because of cuts. Job cuts is something that Wall Street likes to see now, in part because during the pandemic years and months, uh, a lot of companies like Disney were adding people, right? They were doing very well during the pandemic, especially tech companies, more so than media companies. And now they're kind of unwinding that a little bit. This will be 7,000 job cuts. It's about 3% of the global workforce. And you can see where Bob Iger is going to be squeezing costs out of, say, marketing expenditures, which is something that could be felt throughout right. the media right. um, the media atmosphere. But Wall Street likes this. The stock is up uh, something like 19 percent this year. So there's optimism that Iger, the Iger part two yeah. <laughs> is going to can turn we, this company Can we around. talk about what Iger part two looks like? Because there's a lot to look forward to, right, for them as well that they sort of highlighted yesterday. So look, they're going to focus on their core products and they're going to have maybe fewer uh, TV and movie content, but better, right? Really focus on that. So focusing on Star Wars, Marvel, there'll be more Frozen, your family will be happy about that. My family will be happy there's more Toy Story. Um, so there could be more sequels and really focus on the things okay. that got them there and cost cutting, you know, really focusing on the cost. Costs more to make all this streaming content. Yeah. They're losing less money in streaming, which I think is notable, even yeah. though they are, do have, few, they're adding fewer subscribers. Yeah. Um, but losing less money, they want to be profitable by the end of the year and hope to reinstate their dividends. So investors like that too. Okay. Thank you, Roman. You're welcome. Very much. Caitlin. All right. Also this morning, Damar Hamlin says he's counting his blessings. One of my favorite quotes, it's a blessing to be a blessing. Um, With that being said, I plan to never take this position for granted and always have an urgent approach in making a a difference in the community where I come from and also communities across the world. Thank you. Amazing to hear from him. Damar Hamlin accepted this year's Alan Page Community Award for the millions of dollars that were raised by his toy drive. 
Of course, after he went into cardiac arrest during that football game that everyone remembers, donations poured into his foundation's GoFundMe. They ended up totaling more than $9 million. While no official diagnosis has been made yet for what caused his cardiac arrest, Dr. Tom Mayer, who is the medical director for the NFL Players Association, says he's optimistic about his future. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Veronica, that DeMar Hamlin will play professional football again. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is back with us this morning. Sanjay, he says, I guarantee you, he he will play again. You know, he can play again. Does that mean that he should, though, I think is a big question a lot of people will have. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, just, you know, that that was a very definitive statement by Dr. Meyer. You're not used to hearing doctors be that definitive about it. Um, but he also wouldn't say that lightly, given his position and given his knowledge of, of DeMar Hamlin's situation. I mean, first of all, as you know, Caitlin, we, we still haven't ha- heard an official diagnosis of what happened with DeMar Hamlin. But when Dr. Meyer says this, uh, it, it portends a few things. First of all, there's all sorts of different tests, which he likely had done in order to to figure out the status of his heart. And based on those tests, tests such as an EKG, an echocardiogram, heart CT scan, uh, stress test, all these sorts of tests, uh, you get the idea that there is no persistent problem with this heart, number one, but also the idea, was there a pre-existing problem with this heart? And what those, given that those tests are presumably negative because of Dr. Meyer's comments, it doesn't sound like there was a pre-existing condition with this heart either. So that, that's, that's really it. We did dig into this a bit yesterday when I heard the comments. And the American Heart Association, as rare as this condition is, Caitlin, and it is a really rare condition, they also say that if someone has no pre-existing conditions and all the heart tests come back normal, then even with the diagnosis of commotio cordis, they can return to play. So, yeah, I mean, it's a strong statement. Um, the American Heart Association says you can return to play, uh, but that's, that's, I think, what's driving Dr. Meyer's comments. I think, I guess, one of the questions is, if it was because of commotio cordis, and, you know, we're still waiting to figure that out, does it mean it could happen again? Yeah, again, a great question. And, you know, one thing I just want to stress is that we're dealing with something that's really rare here. When I say rare, maybe a couple of dozen cases a year. Um, and, And the reason that's relevant is because there's just not a lot of data than to speculate on things. What I will say is there have been situations where players have returned to play, even at the professional level, uh, after having a diagnosis of commotio cordis. So yes, they can. And I think the second part of your question is, really, what is the likelihood that it would happen again? And again, based on limited data, it is, it is uh, very unlikely. We haven't had a documented case where someone had commotio cordis and then it happened again. So I think that's what they're taking into account as well. Yeah, a lot of still question, big questions about this remain. Sanjay, though, thank you for breaking it down for us. The one thing that we do know is he is an amazing young man, and we hope that he does continue. Whatever he decides to do, if yep. he wants to play, we play and be safe. And be safe. And if he doesn't, then we go with totally. that. But he's a great guy, and we wish him the very best. Yeah. President Biden is pointing the finger at Senator Rick Scott as he accuses some Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare. In a moment, the senator will join us to respond. There he is up on your screen. Also, New York City's mayor blasting Texas for busing migrants migrants to this city. Why is New York City buying them bus tickets to go to Canada then? He'll join us live. To the mayor and Rick Scott. 
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. In his State of the Union address, President Biden accused some, but not all, Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. You can see Kevin McCarthy there shaking his head. That led Republicans in the chamber to boo President Biden, call him a liar. The president did not name names on Tuesday, but yesterday he was in Wisconsin and he identified the Republican lawmakers that he was referencing, reading directly from their proposals. I got his brochure right here. It has a plan. Here's what he says in his plan. Let me get open it up here. Sorry. He says, all federal legislation sunsets every five years. If the law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. The president there was referring to Senator Rick Scott, and today he is going to Senator Scott's home state of Florida, where he's set to give a speech on Social Security and Medicare in Tampa. So joining us now for his perspective is that senator, Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I think my first question has to be, given the fact that the president is now using this as an attack line, was it a mistake to propose this? No. First off, nobody believes that I want to cut Medicare or Social Security. I've never said it. I've never said it. In that same plan, I said Congress needs to once a year tell the American public how they're going to make sure those programs don't go bankrupt because in the verge of bankrupts. And here's the difference between Joe Biden and me. I've never proposed it. In 1975, he has a bill, a sunset bill, and it says it requires every program to be looked at freshly at least every four years, not not just cost, but worthiness. And, Caitlin, he said, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in government. So here's the difference. I've never proposed it. He proposed it in a bill, and he fought for it year after year after year. You're talking about what he proposed back in, you know, 1975, almost 50 years ago. But you have said he's twisting your words, but isn't that the same thing that what you're proposing now, what you rolled out last summer? Mine says, mine says clear. Mine says clear. You know, if it's worth keeping, we're going to keep it. In his case, okay, I mean, he proposed a bill to just sunset everything. I've, I've never done that. I've been very clear. I am not for cutting Social Security, Medicare. The, that quote says he's clearly, he proposed it year after year after year to reduce Medicare and Social Security. Year after year. I've never done that. I don't believe in that. I think we've got to preserve those benefits. You say he's twisting your words, but he said, quote, some Republicans want Social Security and Medicare to sunset. You wrote, I suggest the following. All federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. You are a Republican. Medicare and Social Security are federal legislation. And you said if it's worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. But but no one, I don't think, has confidence that if something comes up for a vote every five years, that Congress is going to be able to make sure it stays, especially something that vitally important to so many. Caitlin, I've been clear. I'm not going to do it. In contrast, let's remember, just what, a few months ago, all Democrats voted and Joe Biden signed a bill to cut $280 billion out of Medicare. $280 billion cut out of Medicare. 
That's not true, Senator. We talked about this the other day when you were on the program, that that what it passed in the Inflation Reduction Act, reducing drug spending is not cutting benefits to Medicare. Okay, Caitlin, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. This is back when uh, Republicans were proposing reducing the cost of Medicaid. He said, Jake Tapper said, I know the Trump administration is excited that Medicaid will go back to the states where they have more control and can experiment and be more efficient. But without question, $880 billion is a cut. So it's a, is it a cut when, the re, when Republicans do it, but not a cut when Democrats propose savings? But what you're referencing, Senator, I, I looked into this because we talked about it the other day. And even the senior VP for AARP's government affairs said this has been fact-checked repeatedly and shown to be a lie. In fact, this bill saves Medicare nearly $300 billion by lowering the price of drugs. Our drug company, only drug companies would say that saving people money is a bad thing. But what about what Jake Tapper said? I mean, what Jake Tapper said... Was Jake Tapper referring reduce, to the Inflation Reduction Act? I don't think he was. He was referring to a reduction in costs in Medicaid. So that's but a how cut. does that have to do with what, what, what Democrats passed last fall? This is about lowering, allowing them to negotiate the prices of drugs. And basically, if you've budgeted and you've got $15,000 and you go and buy a car and it now costs $12,000, that doesn't mean you only have $12,000. It means you just did not spend all $15,000, Right. Caitlin, two things. First off, what they did last fall is going to reduce life-saving drugs. What the Republicans proposed was not a reduction in, in Medicaid benefits. It was a cut. And Jake Tapper said that is a cut. So CNN says it's not a cut if Democrats do it. It is a cut if Republicans do it. That's, I mean, what, what else can you say? I mean, that's exactly you got. You know, I, I, I see what you're saying. But how, you know, have you talked to Jake Tapper? What did, why did he say it was a cut if Republicans do it? Senator, I'm not sure that what Jake Tapper said is relevant to what this particular point is on what you're claiming about the cost of drugs costing less and therefore being a cut. Everyone else has said that is not true. It's been fact-checked multiple times, and they say that that's simply not true. But, okay, so if they, if the same, did the same fact-checkers go back and look at what Jake Tapper said? I mean, I mean, I don't get I don't get why if one party proposes efficiencies, that's a cut. But if the other party does, it's not a cut. I mean, and because let's remember, you cut $280 billion dollars out of Medicare benefits. spending. Correct. OK, well, okay. it absolutely is. What they did last fall is going to reduce life saving drugs. I, mean, I understand you're saying it has an impact. Drugs. I understand you're saying it has an impact on drugs. That is different, though, than saying that they cut Medicare when they're saving money on the cost of what those drugs cost to Americans. Okay, but then what? Then why did Jake Tapper said that eight hundred eighty billion dollar cut in Medicaid is a cut? I'm sorry, Senator. I don't think that's the defense that you think it is. But I want to go back to this point in your proposal on Medicare and Social Security because you're saying that that is not what your intention was with your proposal last fall. But even Republicans. It came back and came out against that, including Senator Mitch McConnell, who said we will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half the American people and sunsets Social Security and Medicare within a, even within five years. Even Republicans Here's thought that's what you were suggesting. So here, let's first off, I think I probably cut taxes more than almost any Republicans. I did taxes and fees 100 times as governor. I've never supported a tax or fee increase. That's one. Number two, and I won't support any. Number two is. I've been clear, I will not reduce Social Security and Medicare benefits, right? 
I've been clear, and I was clear in my plan that Congress needs to fix Medicare. I mean, make sure that Medicare and Social Security survive. I said, we got to tell them what we're going to do, all the recipients, how we're going to do it. Does that sound like somebody that wants to cut Medicare and Social Security? But in contrast, we have a president that proposed it time and time and time again, and we've got Democrats that have done it just in the last few months. Senator, if that wasn't your intention, why didn't you put an exemption for Medicare and Social Security in your plan? Well, I was, I was very clear. It's my plan. I wrote it. I've told people all along what I believe. I fought for Medicare and Social Security the entire time I've been up here, uh, and I'm going to continue to fight for it. And, and look, Joe Biden has proposed this, and he wants to say, I, I have done it. No, I'm the opposite. But you actually did propose it. it. It's in, it's, no, it was I didn't. online. Caitlin, I wrote the plan. Caitlin, I wrote the plan. I mean, you I didn't know. write the plan. I wrote the plan, and I've been clear about it. Anybody asked me what I meant, I've been very clear. Nobody believes that I have a goal of reducing. I don't know any Republicans that want to cut Medicare or Social Security benefits, but I know Democrats that have done it, and you've got a president that proposed it time and time again. Okay, so let's we say live in reality. Let's we are living in reality, and let's say your plan passes and this happens, and then every five years it's up for a vote. We're watching what's happening with the debt ceiling right now, and how some Repo- Republicans in your party are trying to use it as leverage. So wouldn't it basically subject Social Security and Medicare to these potential extortion tactics by Republicans down the road? We have thirty-one half trillion dollars for the debt. If you care about preserving Medicare and Social Security, we will figure out how to start living within our means because there is come, there will be a day in time that we can't borrow more money. I want to make sure we balance our budget and preserve Medicare and Social Security, and I've been clear all along. Uh, so what I want to do is get rid of wasteful programs that we never review up here. They just, they just, we, they get passed. Nobody ever looks at them. Like and which I've been ones? very clear. Say it again, please. Which, which programs? Oh, there's a, there's a variety of things. We don't review anything. When I was governor of Florida, there was 4,000 lines of the budget. Every year I went through the budget, say, are we getting a return on your tax dollars? I mean, we don't have unlimited dollars. I mean, we can't, I mean, there's not, we don't, we can't just keep borrowing money the way we've been borrowing money. We've got to say, what's in a program that makes some sense and what's programs that don't? I mean, 87,000 more IRS agents, something I would cut immediately. It's 87,000 I mean, more There's a whole bunch IRS of Green New employees. Deal stuff that makes no sense to me. You're, President Biden is coming to your state today. You've put out a new ad saying that he should resign. What is behind your call for the president to resign? He's a failure. He's a complete failure. I mean, look at what the people, what people my state care about. Inflation, he caused it. Gas prices, he caused it. We got open border, he caused it. We got, we got now people that are t- putting their life at risk, taking little rafts to come from Cuba to try to get to Florida because they believe if they get there, they can stay. 65 people died. He's put these, he's put these people at risk. I mean, look at, the, look at the Chinese spy balloon. He let the thing go clear across this country before he did anything. And there is no transparency in his administration. So he's been a complete failure, and now he lies about uh, what I want to get done, and I don't appreciate it. But does this have to do with the president invoking a proposal you made that has caused backlash among your own party and his State of the Union address on Tuesday night? Is that behind your call for him to resign? No, no, it's his failures. I mean, think about it. inflation, gas prices. Um, look at the look at the border. Um, I mean, you look, why couldn't he make sure that Putin didn't invade Ukraine? There's all sorts of things he's failed at. You think it's the president's fault that Putin invaded Ukraine? He did, he didn't do enough to deter him. 
It, I mean, it didn't happen before he was president. And by the way, 70,000 people dying of fentanyl. I mean, what, you know, he has a fentanyl proposal. I have fentanyl proposals. He won't sit down with me and talk about them. But the most important ones should secure the darn border. Why can't this president do the basic job of keeping Americans safe? Secure the darn border. I don't get it. Okay, Senator, this was about the Social Security and Medicare proposal that you made. I know this is something that President Biden is going to bring up when he's in your home state today. So thank you for, for joining us this morning with your perspective. Thanks, Caitlin. Have a good day. All right. Also this morning, there is new CNN reporting that New York City is buying bus tickets for migrants who are headed to Canada. We're going to talk about it with Mayor Eric Adams. That's next. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. The New York Times is reporting that New York City is busing, buying bus tickets, I should say, for migrants who want to seek asylum in Canada. City officials once condemned Texas leaders for busing migrants from the southern border, calling the treatment, quote, inhumane. NYC shelters are really buckling under the strain of the migrant arrivals. More than 44,000 people have been bused to the city since last spring. And last weekend, the New York City mayor... Eric Adams spent the night at a migrant facility in Brooklyn. You're looking at the video there. There he is. The mayor slept on a cot and said, quote, I would never ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't do, that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Well, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, joins us now. Mayor, good morning to you. Thank you very much. Good morning, John. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. So can you tell us how many migrants recently have been given bus tickets out of the city to travel to Canada? No, we don't uh, send migrants to Canada. (laughs) And that needs to be clear. Uh, We are doing what other municipalities, particularly the governor of Texas, was not willing to do. We found at the beginning of this issue uh, last year when we spoke with migrants, we learned that they were compelled to come to New York City. We're sitting down, giving them health care, education, food, shelter, but we're also asking them, what are your desires? What do you want to do? Some stayed here. Overwhelmingly, uh, the numbers stayed here. But there were those that wanted to go to other locations throughout this country, and that is what we're doing. That's the right thing to do. So uh, is the New York Times reporting inaccurate, then, that you're buying bus tickets for migrants who want to seek asylum in Canada? Is that inaccurate? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We are not encouraging anyone to go to another country, if we speak with the migrant, interview them, find out their desires, and make sure that we are assisting them, like we've done, as you stated. Uh, In January 1st, 2022, Don, we had 45,000 people in our shelter system. In one year, we had 43,000 that has gone through our system in one year, and we have handled each one of them with a hum- in a humane way. I just way. want to understand, that I'm trying to figure out the distinction here because you slammed the Texas governor, Greg Abbott's program to bus migrants from Texas to New York. You said it was inhumane. I just want to play what Abbott said and why he was busing the migrants and then get your response. Here it is. They needed relief, and busing was one of the ways of providing them relief, and thus began the process of busing the migrants to cities that self-identified as sanctuary cities. Okay, so he's saying self-identified as sanctuary cities. You were saying self-identified as places where people wanted to go. Um, and he's, he's saying that he's sending them to places where they want to go. What is the distinction? No, no, he didn't say that, Don. I heard him. I heard him. He stated he sent them to cities that self-identified as sanctuary cities. And not only did he send them there, he compelled them. They had to leave 
Texas. And that's a big difference than bringing people in, interviewing them, speaking with them, and find out what were their original intentions and desires. And that's what we did in the city. That is not what uh, uh, Abbott did in Texas. And what he did was inhumane. We're showing a level of humane interactions with our migrants. Nowhere else is is what we are doing is actually taking place nowhere else. All right, I just want to get something else. This one is, relates to Mexico. The Washington Post is now reporting that the Biden administration is negotiating an agreement with Mexico that could allow U.S. authorities to carry out large-scale deportations of non-Mexicans back across the border for the first time. Could this be a breakthrough in addressing the problem? I need to look through exactly uh, what is being reported. Uh, I have not been part of those conversations with the White House. Uh, our concerns has always been uh, to have a decompression strategy that we could ensure the entire country participate in this national issue. All right. Thank you for responding to that. I, I want to play what President Biden said at the State of the Union about Tyree Nichols and policing. Here it is. But what happened to Tyree in Memphis happens too often. We have to do better. Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. You're a former member of law enforcement. Biden said that it is time to finish the job on police reform. What do you want to see from Congress and the president and how soon do they need to act? I agree with the president. And, you know, I, as you stated, I wore the uniform. Uh, not only did I wear the uniform, I was a victim of police abuse as a child of uh, 15 years old being abused by police officers. And I think we need to have real comprehensive uh, police reform to make sure that we, number one, uh, weed out those officers that are not uh, suitable to do the job and also give them the proper tools uh, to do the job effectively. But let's be clear. Uh, every time we take away tools from police officers that are doing the job correctly, we are emboldening those dangerous people in our country and city. The recidivism is a real crisis. There are bad people doing bad things. We just lost an officer a few days ago who was shot and killed. The gun violence and the proliferation of guns in our country is a real issue. So we must have justice and public safety. They go together. I've got to ask you about something you said in an interview yesterday, and you said that woke Democrats are driving minority voters out of the party. What did you mean by that? And I wonder if that's really happening, because the president of the United States, a leader of the Democratic Party, um, had the nation's attention during the State of the Union, and he said he did not want to defund the police. He wasn't acting as a quote unquote woke person. He said he wanted to fund uh, communities. So do you think that minority voters were are going to listen to him? Why would you, why did you say that? Yes, I think they are going to listen to him. And you know, what has happened in this country, the numerical minority, they have hijacked uh, the term progressive. Uh, I have been progressive all my life. Look at, you look at uh, the issues I fought for from police reform, housing, education. But we've allowed a small number uh, that are the loudest, and they've hijacked the true meaning of the Democratic Party. We're not for defunding the police. Uh, we're not for attacking businesses. We're for jobs. We're for growth. And when you listen uh, to those who have hijacked our narrative, and it's a small number on the fringe uh, ends of our party, and I support what the president 
uh, stated and what I continue to state. Right here in the city, we have a group that is they're calling for removing members of their own caucus if they don't sign a pledge to defund the police. That is not who we are as Democrats, and I'm going to continue to stand and state that we're pro-public safety and we're pro-proper policing. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. All right, great interview there, Don. Ahead, can a new Harry Potter video game revive the struggling franchise? We have none other than Vanessa Yurkiewicz here to take a break from playing this game and explain it to us. <laughs> More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the highly anticipated release of the new Harry Potter game Hogwarts Legacy is shrouded with some controversy. Some fans are expected to boycott it to protest author J.K. Rowling's comments offensive to the transgender community. Our Vanessa Yurkiewicz reports. In light of your unique situation, Joining us as a fifth year, we've devised something extraordinary to ensure your success. Harry Potter is back, but not in the way diehard fans may be used to. In the new open world video game Hogwarts Legacy, players can experience the world of Harry Potter, but set in the 19th century and with new characters. The player isn't Harry, Ron, or Hermione, but their very own Witcher Wizard avatar. It's pretty much like my dream of being in Hogwarts. It feels like a real life Harry Potter. Hogwarts Legacy, made by Avalanche and Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN's parent company, has been five years in the making. After two rollout delays, the game is finally hitting the market. The expectations are quite high not just from the consumers, but also from the game makers themselves. Some estimates suggest the game cost $150 million to make, but in a $200 billion industry bigger than film or music, the payoff could be huge. My expectation for this title is that it's going to easily sell 10 million copies, which puts it very much into the black very quickly. The game already broke a record on Twitch for being the most watched single player game played by streamers who got it early. And it's the number one pre-sale this week on the gaming platform Steam. Warner Brothers has 20 years of experience putting out Harry Potter video games, but based on the movies. How has Warner Brothers been in terms of a game maker? A little rocky. Um, they definitely put out some big titles and work with some big franchises but their games have been hit and miss. This definitely feels as something new. You know, Harry Potter is... Hold that thought. <laughs> One of two calls during our interview from someone looking for the game. It's not a commercial risk so much as it is a cultural one. J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, has made a series of offensive comments about the trans community, forcing pushback from some of the movie's actors and fans, some who are boycotting the new game. Warner Brothers Discovery says Rowling is not involved in the game, but stands to make licensing royalties. I thought it was going to impact my, my view on the whole Harry Potter world, but right now I... I am able to separate the, the situation with J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter world. But the controversy has turned some fans off. So are you still a Harry Potter fan? No. I think just I think it's become weirdly divisive and I'm old now, so I don't care. Divisive how? Because uh, of the weird tension between the creator, the fans. 
it perhaps has, a, a, has room to develop something new, to iterate on the existing relationship with its fan base. So perhaps a, you know, making it into this big production video game allows the franchise to kind of save itself a little bit from the drag that it's been experiencing culturally. And we have CNN producer Carolyn Sung playing the game live right now on television. The reviews have been really good for this game so far. People love the visual look. They feel like it's very realistic. They love that they can create their own character. They're learning as they play the game. But some are complaining that it takes a little too long to learn certain skills to then fly the broom. That's sort of what Harry Potter is known for. And as you notice, Carolyn is playing as a single player. We can't play with her because this is not a multiplayer game. And some video game experts are saying that that's actually a revenue lost opportunity for the brand because when you have multiplayers, it allows you to purchase into the world of which you can play together. You can also do in-game purchases and create new worlds and levels by purchasing more. So some experts say that we will eventually get there, but as of right now, this is just you as your person, that's supposed to be me, but this is the Harry Potter world of today. And as of right now, people are really excited to see what it can do. This is the Christmas for Harry Potter fans and gamers tomorrow when it comes out. Carol, what do you guys think? Are you in? I'm sorry? Which house are you in? I have, I'm in a bank vault and I'm stuck and I need to beat these statues at some point. <laughs> and this is what people are saying. It's like you get stuck in here for a little too long and you can't move on to the next level, but there's still a lot to do while you're here. Okay. Right. Bobby and Don are like, too old. We'll be right back. They're so blown away. All right, back in a moment. Oh, boy. Good morning. A tragedy of unimaginable scale. More than 17,000 people have now died as time is running out to save survivors in the earthquake. Breaking overnight, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who is still recovering from a stroke, has been admitted to the hospital after he felt lightheaded. We have an update on his condition. In a new interview, President Biden addressing concerns about his age and why he hasn't yet made a decision about whether he'll run for re-election. Right now, lawmakers getting a classified briefing on the Chinese spy balloon, and there's new CNN reporting about who knew what and when. The P word, the B word, and the A word have all been entered into the congressional record as the Republican efforts to expose those at the top of Twitter has taken a surprising turn. CNN This Morning starts right now. I'm glad you guys could join us. I want everyone to keep this number in mind, 17,000. 17,000, not just talking a number, I should say, that, that's people, people. right? Yeah. And that's where we're going to begin. We begin in Turkey and Syria, where 17,000 victims, that death toll is climbing. It has been more than three days since the catastrophic earthquake struck, and time is running out for anyone that might still be alive and trapped beneath the rubble in frigid weather right now. Rescue teams are using microphones to listen for voices and any signs of life. But listen to that. When they pull people out alive, there are cheers after the quiet of just listening for people for hours. We are now past the 72-hour window of time that experts say is critical for survival. Nick Payton Walsh is going to begin our coverage. He's on the ground in Turkey. Nick, good morning to you. Take us there, please. 
Don, here in Antakya, probably one of the biggest cities to have been impacted by this earthquake. The devastation is utterly staggering. You can see just behind me what the rubble has done and also the grim toll that's slowly been building over the last hour, the bodies that have been brought out. One just behind me before, literally as you were speaking, Don, brought from the wreckage. There are moments when rescue workers run in desperately hoping that the noises or that the body they've seen may emerge indeed alive. But I have to tell you, so far today in Hate, because of that hour you were talking about fast diminishing, that is less and less the case. And indeed, the devastation is startling. These streets of apartment blocks, some standing unscathed, perhaps with cracks, others tilted at an angle, others completely destroyed. In fact, we went to one street where, bizarrely, it seemed that every building in that had lost its bottom three floors, but indeed sunk down and was still standing. In one of those buildings, there was again a rush of medical workers, a moment of elation, people thinking possibly within that building they may have found somebody alive in some of the cavernous spaces that occasionally get caused when rubble collapses in a certain way. But sadly, uh, minutes later, they pulled out uh, an eight-year-old girl who had indeed perished, her mother there to put her onto the ambulance, move her away. But these bodies over here, uh, as they stand, have some of them uh, marked with owner identified. Others are simply going to join the larger numbers here of people whose relatives may also have perished as well. But a city of this size, Antakya, often heavily populated with Syrian refugees, has been hit incredibly hard. And the scale at which we see streets levelled is startling. The anger against the government palpable too. Many angry at how fast the government didn't get here on the first day. Others angry at the culture of getting rich by construction, which led to some of the shoddy practices, which clearly led some of these buildings coming down. But the numbers, Don, just growing fast and it is desperately heartbreaking to see endless bodies brought out on blankets from the rubble here. Don? Oh, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you very much. Reporting this morning from Turkey. Senator John Fetterman is back in the hospital this morning after a health scare. We're told he felt lightheaded and doctors have been running tests to make sure he didn't have another stroke. He did have a stroke last year. You'll remember when he was on the campaign trail. Uh, he refused to quit. He ended up flipping Pennsylvania's Senate seat for Democrats. Let's bring in our congressional correspondent, Jessica Dean, on Capitol Hill. Jess, you know, we, we just saw Dana talking to him right before the State of the Union. He seemed in good health, good spirits. What can you tell us about his condition this morning? Yeah, good morning, Poppy. We know that he's still in the hospital right now. They're running additional tests. The positive news is that his office is saying that doctors are saying they don't believe there's been any new stroke, but they just wanted to keep him there overnight to run some more tests, keep him under observation. Let me walk you through exactly what they said happened, and, and then we can talk more about it. Uh, his office releasing a statement saying toward the end of this uh, Senate Democratic retreat, which was happening in Washington, D.C., Senator John Fetterman began feeling lightheaded. He left with it. He then caught left and called his staff who picked him up and drove him to the George Washington University Hospital. Initial tests did not show evidence of a new stroke, but doctors are running more tests and John is remaining overnight for observation. And Poppy, as you mentioned, of course, he did suffer that stroke back in May. That's when he was running to uh, for the primary. He actually won that primary in the hospital. He was in the hospital for nine, 10 days and then, of course, had to recover. And we 
heard him. He would talk about slurring his words, missing his words on the campaign trail. And as you mentioned, I have seen him up here since then. He seemed to be going about business as usual. Mm -hmm. uh, we're hoping to get an update. I've reached out to his office this morning, but so far have not heard back. Uh, but uh, again, as, as far as we know right now, he remains in the yep. hospital. They're still running those tests. We're all rooting for him, all thinking about his wife and his family right now. Jess, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Reports of multiple tornadoes creating havoc in the south. I want you to take a look at this, a trail of destruction following a severe storm in Louisiana. The sheriff's office there says that multiple homes were damaged in Tangipahoa Parish and powerful winds flipped over a mobile home. In Mississippi Valley, more than 2 million people were under tornado alerts on Wednesday. The storms are expected to head toward the Midwest today, bringing snow. Caitlin? Also this morning happening right now, House lawmakers are now in a classified briefing about the Chinese surveillance balloon we've all been talking about, the one that floated through U.S. airspace across the United States before it was finally shot down on the South Carolina coast over the weekend. Later this morning, senators will have their turn to get their classified briefing with officials from the Biden administration. This all comes as we were getting new details about what U.S. officials knew weeks ago about the suspected balloon after the Defense Department sent out an internal report that is known as a tipper through classified channels. The memo made clear that a flying object was headed toward U.S. territory, but it wasn't flagged as urgent at that time. Now, this has, of course, become a political flashpoint with Republicans who are criticizing the way the White House responded to all of this. CNN's Natasha Bertrand has this reporting. Natasha, so this starts out as a tipper. It's not flagged as urgent. What does that mean about how officials found out about this? Yes, Caitlin. So just taking a step back here, this was the day before the balloon entered U.S. airspace over Alaska. The Defense Intelligence Agency did send what's known as a tipper, essentially a report that flags foreign objects uh, to uh, government channels, right? This was why this was disseminated across government channels, classified channels, and essentially anyone who wanted to read it had access to it. But because it was not flagged as urgent, it was not really briefed to the highest levels. And it was not flagged as urgent because the U.S has seen balloons like this before, right? We have learned a lot in the last several days about what the U.S. actually knows about this fleet of balloons and the surveillance program that they're apparently a part of. And they believed at the time that even though it was probably headed towards Alaska, it was not an urgent threat. It did not pose a military or a physical threat to the United States. And therefore, it seemed like the best course of action would just be to monitor it and potentially even collect intelligence about it. But it, when it, it did enter Alaskan airspace on January 28th, officials started noticing something odd, which is that it took a sharp downward turn over Canada and then into Montana. And that is when things started getting pretty serious, Caitlin. Yeah, remarkable. And I, I know all of this is going to be looked at because Republicans say they're going to launch investigations into this. Natasha, great reporting on your end. Thank you. Well, yesterday, House Republicans grilled former Twitter executives trying to get them to admit the FBI wanted Twitter to help Joe that Twitter wanted to help Joe Biden ahead of the 2020 election by suppressing that Hunter Biden laptop story. Many Americans did not know about it because of a coordinated cover up by big tech, the swamp and mainstream news. Twitter was basically a subsidiary of the FBI. I think you guys wanted to take it down. I think you guys got played by the FBI. But witnesses at the House Oversight Committee hearing pushed back. Actually, a former Twitter employee did say she'd heard of the federal government trying to suppress speech on the site. But she said it was the Trump White House that made that request. 
The former president reportedly contacted Twitter to ask that they remove a derogatory tweet from model Chrissy Teigen. The former Twitter employee read the tweet. And I just, in this congressional hearing, I want to warn everyone, if you have kids, turn the TV down, you know, turn the radio down, because um, you'll, you'll hear why. Listen. Earlier, you testified about a 2019 tweet um, that was about President Trump. And I think it was from uh, Ms. Teagan. What was the tweet about? Would you like me to give the direct quote? Yeah. Um, Please excuse my language. This is a direct quote. But Chrissy Teagan referred to Donald Trump as a pussy ass bitch. Okay. Free speech. Kara Swisher is with us, uh, host of On with Kara Swisher. (laughs) Quite an intro. well, An NYU Stern School of Business marketing professor and host of the Prof G podcast, Scott Galloway, and the host of the best joint podcast around the pivot. Hey, guys, good see, morning. Did you see Scott's face? Hi. I didn't, but I do want to get yeah. to the <laughs> substance of this and move on from what was put on the congressional yeah. record, though. I mean, what uh-huh. a moment, Kara, um, yeah. to say, we, oh, I'm this happened, we- but not the way you thought it happened. That's correct. I'm glad we got to the bottom of this nonsense. I mean, this is ridiculous. What has been shown here is that uh, Twitter was was not really pressured, but they were contacted by everybody who wanted to influence what they were doing. But there was no conspiracy here. There was no anything except people trying to, to gain purchase. And in the case of this Hunter Biden thing, they denied it. This is not there's no they denied it. And so I think this was a waste of taxpayer money. It's a lot of nonsense. It's a lot of allegations that they just can't prove. And so hopefully they'll move along from this one and move on to another nonsensical idea or conspiracy theory around these people. But I thought the executives did a great job. If you look at it, wasn't just they're trying to make it to be some sort of left wing conspiracy or what have you. But they were it was actually Trump who was trying to get Twitter, and mm-hmm. it looks like successfully got them to change their rules as it relates to... Sure. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, they tolerated him. They, they, we, this is well known. It was out in the open. There's no conspiracy here. He was, you know, he abused the rules of Twitter over and over again, and they let him do it. And that's pretty much it. But there's no conspiracy of a bunch of, you know, a cabal of people deciding things like this. They're just trying to run their company, and they have a, a difficult customer, and they let him do what he wanted. And that's pretty much what came out at this hearing. Well, just to clarify, because in, their policy was to, if you said something like, uh, go back to your own country or something like that, and they took that language mm-hmm. out to appease, yes. right, the, so that the president can get away with tweeting certain yeah. things. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but Scott, this has been the subject of so many conversations that I've had with Republicans and Trump officials, that there was this conspiracy you know, James Comer, the, who's the House Oversight Chair that we saw there, was saying the other day that the FBI and, and Twitter were colluding on this. And when, you know, we said there's no evidence of that, there's no evidence that there's any directive they got on the Hunter Biden story. And now we see it was actually Trump people who were also asking to remove tweets because of what it was saying about the president of the United States. So does this end this whole saga or what is your prediction? The only conspiracy here is a conspiracy of dunces that is our government right now is reflected in this hearing. This this communicates to every Chinese official, send more balloons. These people are idiots. Uh, First off, it begins from a place of idiocy. A private company has no fidelity to the First Amendment. It's like it's as if are you going to have Ted Cruz on later today? Oh, no, you're you're censoring the government. The notion that the FBI, the only real 
the only real targeted assertion that they really needed to defend was that they coordinated with the FBI. They did not coordinate with the FBI. As a matter of fact, if there's any censoring going on, if there's any bias, it's toward letting the president organize an insurrection on their platform and that they weren't being as diligent as they should have been around censoring certain content. There's a certain both side of them. I do believe the Twitter executives probably lean progressive and as a result, they engage in both sidism and let content and people on the right get away with things they wouldn't let people on the left. But it's a private company. They get to decide this. Let's take a moment and listen to what one of the three Twitter executives testified about that, Scott, and about the decision on the Hunter Biden laptop story and who it was and what, or was not influenced by. Here it was. I believe Twitter aired in this case because we wanted to avoid repeating the mistakes of 2016. I'm aware of no unlawful collusion with or direction from any government agency or political campaign on how Twitter should have handled the Hunter Biden laptop situation. Um, Kara, it was your interview with mm -hmm. that first executive yeah. where he actually broke the news and you really pressed him on, but you guys were wrong. And essentially what I took from that was we're human, we were wrong, but we were protecting mm -hmm. against the warning of disinformation, right? Um, I'd like to debunk right. a... Um, something that's just not a fact that really powerful Republican lawmakers have been stating as fact. Um, they keep saying, Kara, that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Twitter, that, that, that the FBI paid all this money to Twitter to do things the FBI wanted. Mm -hmm. That is not right. how it works. Can you explain no. the facts? It's not how it works. It didn't happen. They're making it up. They're lying is what they're doing. And it's not true. They're just saying it for the cameras. And uh, this guy in particular, Yoel Roth, was very forthright about a mistake. And what they did is they corrected it the minute they made it. Now, it was a stupid mistake. Absolutely. And they shouldn't have done that. I, I thought it was a bad call. They made a lot of bad calls, including letting President Trump go on and on. But this is a company that can make bad calls. And, and that particular executive uh, got uh, attacked by the right wing and he had to he had to hide. Um, he was under death threats. Um, and, you know, I think they tried very hard to be fair. It's almost impossible. And to then gin up conspiracies is it, on top of it is it's shameful to have done that to these people. That said, you know, they seem to think Twitter is a public utility and it is a private company that can do as mm -hmm. it pleases, even if you don't like it. But the bias was on the side of making sure conservatives weren't tweaked by them. I think that's what came out of this hearing. Final words, Scott? Uh, look, Kara's exactly right. We engage in both sidism and the media because many of us are cognizant of the fact that we might lean progressive if we live in a city or we work in media. And as a result, I think we overcorrect. The, the travesty of the scandal here is that we let a man coordinate an insurrection against the United States on their platform. Yeah. If there's anything here that, that we should really be looking at in terms of putting in place safeguards, or how this, how this company made terrible decisions that really teared at the fabric of America. It was the fact that we decided to get a bunch of people together, let them organize, riot, and then in a violent takeover of our capital, embarrass the nation and set us back probably decades reputationally. That's the scandal here. And that's something the Republicans weren't expecting that they, they would talk about as much. This was a shameful hearing. made us look stupid. Thank I think you both bring up the, the, the really, every, a lot of important points made, but I think the one of the most important made is that mm -hmm. you don't have a right 
to be on. It's not a right to be on Twitter. It's not a right yeah, to, to appear exactly right. on any media platform. It's, it's a privilege, right? They get to do what they want. They get to decide the rules. And that does not mean that right. you're censoring people because you have certain rules. It's just the way it is. Yeah. 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 And also, but we did get that tweet onto the congressional record. It's really a great day for America. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's so ridiculous. So It is. Yeah. Well, get ready for more. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's a really good point, Poppy, about Thank that. Because I, I looked Thanks, into guys. that about um, the FBI is required to reimburse companies yep. for the cost they get That's right. to satisfy subpoenas. That's right. And that Republicans That's have used right. that to say they were paying Twitter. That's right. It's down a rabbit hole, but it really is something that they repeat a lot. No, it's a, it's a good point. I think it's a very good point. But it, I could go on and on and on with this segment, but we have to, to move <laughs> on. But it's, we need more of this to explain to people the madness, as Kara and Scott pointed out, that the American people are going to have to deal with. And you're spending taxpayer money for grudges and grievances from the prior um, and let me tell you something. administration, supporters of the prior administration. Not all Republicans agree with it. They, yeah. they want to investigate other things that they think actually has more traction and would be more meaningful. Would it be great if hearings on educating kids and feeding those most in need got all that attention? And health care and voting rights and all of that stuff. Yeah, well, President right Biden addressing his age and his plans for 2024. He has a new sit-down interviewer, John King. We're lucky. John King is up early and with us this morning. <laughs> hey, John. <laughs> Does it give you any concern? Watch me. <laughs> That's all I can say. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You'd be 82, date of the next election, 86, if you're successful and elected and finish that term. Does it give you any concern? Watch me. <laughs> That's all I can say. Look, I'm a great respecter of fate. I would be completely, thoroughly honest with the American people if I thought there was any health problem, anything that would keep me from being able to do the job. That was President Biden in his first interview since the State of the Union. He told PBS NewsHour that he is confident he can do the job for another four years, despite having yet to officially announce that he's running for office a second time. Here to discuss is CNN's chief national correspondent and the anchor of Inside Politics, John King. John, in this interview, the president said he hasn't made the decision, but it is still his intention to run. You know, do you think that State of the Union address Tuesday night just really solidified that, yeah, he's running? Uh, yes, and his first trip after the State of the Union was to Battleground, Wisconsin. Yeah. So look, he, we should just assume he is running until he tells us otherwise. And I, look, that's a candid answer from the president. We should hold him to it, that if he had any issues, he would be forthright and honest with the American people. But to his broader point, watch him. Of course, we will. Uh, you know, you see the polling. Even Democrats are a little nervous about this. You know, they, they think he's a superhero. He's the guy who beat Donald Trump. So Democrats hold Joe Biden in a very special place. And some of them then think, but... In the next election, should he do it again? So this 2023 is about trying to turn the temperature down on the age question for President Biden. So we'll watch him out on the road and then we'll watch 2024 will be a very different campaign. Remember, 2020 was still a covid campaign. You didn't have as many events. You weren't traveling around the country as much. So the president will get a chance to prove his vigor, if you will, mm. when we have a full blown 2024 campaign. What, I wonder, why, do, why so much attention on Biden's age? And he, look, he says rightfully so, you know, he's going to be honest with people. And he's said that for, for years now, right? The concern about Trump isn't much younger. Was it like two and a half years? So, I think four right, years. So the, yeah. or, or three and a half years. 
So, Don, you frame a great question. You know, Ron DeSantis, I believe, is 44. Nikki Haley, who's going to announce next week, I think is 51. Um, and so do the Republicans nominate Trump again? Then you have a 79-year-old guy running against an 80-year-old guy. I might have the numbers off a little bit, but essentially the same thing. Uh, so you have all these Republicans. Sarah Huckabee Sanders did it in her State of the Union response. We need a generational change. Notice she didn't say it shouldn't be Donald Trump. She just said it shouldn't be uh, Joe Biden. So the Biden people, many of them are banking on the fact that Trump will be the nominee and that the age thing will not be an issue. If the Republicans nominate somebody else, maybe it does become an issue. And why are we talking about it? We should talk about it in the case of Joe Biden and we should talk about it in the case of Donald Trump or anyone else who runs because it's something we've never done before. We've never had a president this age running for reelection. Are people living longer? Is medical science way far advanced than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago when I started doing this? Absolutely. But, but to many voters, it's a legitimate issue. So we should ask, ask the question and as the president says, watch him respectfully. Mm -hmm. I was really interested by his answer on China, John. So uh, Judy Woodruff asked him, has this balloon incident, the spy balloon, um, sort of worsened our relationship with, with China? And he said no. And then he went on to say this. I made it real clear to Xi Jinping that uh, we're going to compete fully with China, but we're not going to look, we're not looking for conflict. What did, what did you make of that? Well, he made that point to Xi Jinping before, well before yeah. Xi Jinping or his government sent a balloon uh, over the United States of America and embarrassed the Biden administration. Uh, look, here's the, what the president's trying to do here is the president is trying to say nothing has changed, right? He hopes that he has more leverage now in the next conversation with Xi Jinping. He hopes that it gives him leverage in the conversation. And he doesn't want to poke him in the eye publicly. But of course, things have changed. The right. Secretary of State canceled a trip. Yeah. They won't take a, a, the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, tried to call his Chinese counterpart and they wouldn't take the call. Uh, Wendy Sherman, a top State Department official, is going to be on Capitol Hill today, along with a lot of Pentagon brass, mid-level generals to explain what happened here. Things have changed. Mm -hmm. What the president hopes is that six months and a year from now, he can use this as leverage and that China, for example, will not invade Taiwan. If six months and a year from now that's true, then maybe things will not have changed. But in the moment, things have changed. Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a huge moment to watch on that with China. He also talked about the classified documents, John. He was saying, to the best of his knowledge, the things that they picked up are things from 1974, stray papers. He said there might be something else. I don't know. Um, but he talked about the people who were packing up his office. He says they didn't do the kind of job that should have been done to go thoroughly through every single piece of literature that's there. What do you make of that? Well, number one, he's the CEO of the operation. Just like George Santos is responsible for his campaign finance reports, Joe Biden is responsible for the documents in his office, right? Uh, it could be a staff member's mistake, but you're still the boss, right? So let's not shift the blame to other people. It's your office. You're responsible for what happens in that office. To the point about it's old stuff from 1974, uh, he better be right. His lawyers have told him to stop answering questions about this, to just say it's under investigation. When that's done, then we can talk. Because he doesn't know, or at least they say they don't know, exactly what was found there. Uh, so so the advice of the lawyers and the political people is to say nothing here. But, Caitlin, you know the president. Sometimes he can't resist trying to say <laughs> everything is fine. Uh, but remember, you know, when, when any politician does this, it, you run a risk that what you say is not true. I give you inflation is transitory as one example for President Biden, which was complicated last year. So his lawyers would like him to be more careful, but he can't resist. Hey, John, you know how this works. We have to go. Uh, but do you think that this is something that is a media story? Do you think it'll affect him with the public, this whole documents issue? 
I think it depends how, how does it end. I, I think it gives yeah. Trump a benefit because Pence did it, Biden did it. So Trump, again, they're yeah. very different circumstances, very different circumstances. But Trump, to his base, says, see, everybody does it. Uh, we, don't, we, can't, we don't know the final chapter of this book yet. We shouldn't try to write it. All right. John King, thank you very much. You can see more thank John you. King just in a couple hours inside politics today at noon here on CNN. Have a great day and a great show. Okay, so one week, two all-star losses. The Brooklyn Nets shipping superstars Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, out of town in blockbuster trades. Who do we have to talk about it? There he is, LZ Granderson, live to discuss. Okay, so uh, let's get, the, we're talking about NBA trade deadlines. There's a lot of trading going on, so let's, I want to get right to it. The Nets have traded Kevin Durant to the Phoenix Suns. That happened overnight. Um, comes right after Kyrie Irving has, says he's going away to the Dallas Mavericks. Official end to what they thought was a very promising super team over in Brooklyn. Elsie Granderson is here. He is a columnist of the Los Angeles Times, host of the podcast Life Out Loud. LZ, thank you. So what do you make? The end of this supposed to be a super team. What up? What happened? <laughs> you know, this is the part of construction of NBA rosters that people forget about, that it takes more than just talent in order to build a championship. You got to have cohesion. You got to have some luck. You got to have clarity from the ownership group all the way down to the 12th man on the team. And the Brooklyn Nets just never had that. Uh, you went through all the players that were traded. But remember, before that, James Harden was traded the year before. And before James Harden was traded, remember, they also they also fired Steve Nash, their head coach. And so this is a franchise that started to disintegrate almost as soon as it was put together. Elsie, what do you what do you make of Kyrie Irving as he's going to the Mavericks? Um, he did delete the apology that he had posted where he said he was deeply sorry for uh, his anti-Semitic um, remarks, the tweet about the film, et cetera. The fa I thought it was really telling what Mark Cuban said back in November during that controversy about him. He said he had a lot to learn, and he said he, he, he's, um, I don't think he has a bad heart, but he wasn't educated about the impact. I mean, given, you know, the Mavericks leadership, what they have overcome right there as an organization, what do you make of this and how Mark Cuban will lead? Well, you, you know, it's, it's a fascinating question because all of that has to do with what is Kyrie's ultimate goal, mm -hmm. right? He is going to be a free agent this year, which means he has to kind of play the good soldier publicly if he wants to sign a long-term deal, either with the Mavericks or some other team. And so I, I think both the Dallas Mavericks as well as Kyrie uh, have a lot invested in order to try to make this work. Kyrie certainly want to secure his his financial future, and the Dallas Mavericks want to return as winners with Luka Doncic. So I think you're going to see uh, Kyrie on his best behavior. But then again, I said that when he was in Boston, and I said that when he was in Brooklyn, too. So <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> yeah, but it does—well, it does, hey, we think you know a lot, so we're having you on. Yeah. But it, it does bring—it's going to put a lot of focus on this and what he does do next, probably even more focus than was already on him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the deleted post, we don't know when he deleted it. So I don't want to necessarily assume mm -hmm. that the trade and the deletion mm -hmm. of the post are connected. But he had to know that there would be a response to deleting that post. So right there lets you know that even though he may be a good soldier, he's not going to not be Kyrie. And so it's going to be interesting to see how he threads the needle between being yeah. who he always has been and being what he needs to be in order to secure that bag. It's a great point. He said, I want to be in places I'm celebrated, not just kind of tolerated. 
Um, LZ, thank you, friend. We'll have you back for longer next time. We appreciate it. And secure that bag, LZ, all right? Hey, thank you for having me. <laughs> Get a that sibling, bag, baby. <laughs> a sibling rivalry on football's biggest stage. We talked to Travis and Jason Kelsey's mom about Sunday's historic matchup and which son she'll be cheering for. Tough call. How on earth do you decide who to root for? Oh, it's going to be easy. Aaron Rodgers said that he will make a decision on his NFL future after going on a darkness retreat, which will consist of him sitting alone in total darkness for four days. It should be interesting when they pull Rodgers out, because if he sees his shadow, that means six more seasons on the pack. Well, there will be more than a Super Bowl on the line when the Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs square off in Arizona this weekend. It will also be a battle for family bragging rights like we have never seen before. Jason Kelsey, a star offensive lineman for the Eagles, and Travis Kelsey, a star tight end for the Chiefs, set to become the very first brothers ever to face off in a Super Bowl. The standout siblings played together in high school and college, and now they'll line up on opposite sides of the field on the NFL's big stage. The brothers kicked off the week with a special surprise from their mother, Donna, who crashed an interview to surprise her boys with what else? Homemade cookies. I got to talk to her yesterday. All right. <laughs> How on earth do you decide who to root for? Oh, it's going to be easy. You know, I have to stand and scream the entire game. Uh, they're both on offense, so every time somebody has a ball, I'll be clapping, and every time somebody gets a touchdown, I'll be thrilled. So it'll there be great. You go. It's gonna there be you go. Just fun. I love it. I have to ask because every parent watching this is going to want to know what on earth you did to have two sons so fit <laughs> to make it to the Super yeah. Bowl. What did you feed these guys? Oh gosh. Oh, really anything they wanted, but, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you, you, when they're into sports and they did everything, they played every kind of possible sport you can think of baseball, a lot of tournaments. We were constantly on the road. You're grabbing, you know, like fast food. It, I wasn't perfect at that point, making sure they had, you know, um, nutritious meals. I did the best I could, yeah. but, um, basically, you know, it was, a lot of protein, and uh, they just, uh, you know, they ate a lot. It was a lot, a lot I, of food, and I constantly. Can, I can only imagine <clears throat> that you would fill the fridge, and then it would be completely empty, like, two days later. How much trash yeah. talk, Donna, at the dinner table? Oh, there wasn't that much because they were on the same team. Well, there but you go. They were, there was a lot of bickering. A lot of bickering and a lot of, you know, one-upping and who won, you know, who can get to the table first, who can get to the car first, uh, you know, to ride in the front seat. It's just it's just things like that, constantly competing. And I think that's what really drove both of them to be the way that they are. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the need and the want to beat somebody in their house, and they're both very athletic, so they had the best – um, you know, individuals to uh, practice against right at home. Yeah, that's true. Um, on a more serious note, because not only do they have this big game match off together, you have raised these right. two incredible humans, and we'll get to their, you know, <laughs> spirit and the people they are in a moment. Yeah. But these incredible yeah. athletes who will likely end up on a short list of brothers enshrined in the Pro Hall of Fame. 
What did you do when, I don't know, one of them wanted to give up, right? We always try to encourage our kids keep going when it gets really hard, push through. Yeah. What'd you do? Well, yeah, there, you know, it's a true story. Jason did not get any scholarships to go to college. And I said, you know, I believe in you. You believe in yourself. Just persevere. Mm. Keep doing it. I know you have it within you. Just try your hardest. Don't give up. You'll never forgive yourself. Pick a school. We'll, we'll work it out. We'll find a way that we can make it work. And uh, that's exactly what he did. And the same thing with Travis. I mean, he's had his own adversity with <clears throat> different things. And I, I would tell him the same thing. If this is something you truly, truly love to do, keep at it. Ask them, how can I get more playing time? What can I do? How can I get better? Um, but it's got to come from the kid, not the parent. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, right? It's something in them that helps them keep going. But I think moms yeah. and dads have a lot to do with it. Both both yeah. of them were drafted by Kansas City Chiefs head coach Andy Reid, and, and he was yeah. asked this week about them, and I love what he said. He, he called them both compassionate competitors who care about people as much as they care about the game. You know— yeah. Eventually, the sport ends, right? And eventually, you're not playing in the NFL anymore. You're you're who Correct. you are as a person. So what did that mean right. to you to hear that? You know, I, that makes a mom feel like she did something right. Um, sports is a game, and it's fun. And if you get to play it, it's amazing. But not, all, not everyone can get there. I mean, you know, things have to happen. The right time, the right coaches, teams have to need your skill set. So, you know, you need to do something after sports. It's it's very, very fleeting career. Even though they've been doing it for over 10 years, that's surprising too. But you need to treat everyone with respect and kindness and just treat, you know, um, you know, don't, make yourself better than anyone else because mm. that is just uh, it's important to have a good character and that will see you through anything amen all right i gotta ask what do you say to the son yeah. whose team doesn't go home with the trophy uh, yeah yeah that's a tough one <clears throat> it's gonna be hard because in you know, when, when somebody wins, only the winners and the winners' families are allowed on the field. The losers have to leave. You know, oh. they, they go off the field. So I can't see them. They're going to get on a bus and they're going to go to their hotel. And there will be post parties for both the winners and the losers because it was a rough year. Mm -hmm. And I will go to the post-game hotel after the ceremony and I'll give my son a huge hug and a kiss because there's nothing that I could say that will, you know, mean anything at that point. He's going to be a broken, you know, person. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, he'll be happy for his brother. But, he, you know, the hours and the months that you put in to get to this point, it's tough. Well, from one mom to the next, to you, the hours that you put in to raising them. Look at where they have come. Donna Kelsey, um, oh, what a treat. What a treat wild. to get to talk yeah. to you. Have a lot of fun. Um, and I'll Thanks. root for the offense with you, okay? There you go. That's good. There you go. Yeah, it'll be fun. Okay. <laughs> Let's hope for a high-scoring game. There you go. Donna Kelsey, congrats. All right. Okay, thank you so much. She's my new favorite 
American mama after my own. Poppy, she's, she's so, so cute. Great. And the back of her jersey's the Eagles. Split. The front is the Chiefs. And her tennis shoes are split and her jacket is split. To hear what she said about driving them around to practices and games, they played every sport, feeding them, you know, fast food. She was saying it wasn't always the most She made me feel better, yeah. But so, every parent, you know, everyone, my brother's played so many sports and you drive them everywhere, you do all these things and like it shows that like it, it's worth it. My kids are going to take the subway in New York City. <laughs> here's, my, here's my question. Yeah. Which party would you go to? Well, no, I know because you told me during the piece. Which party would you go to? I'm going to go to the winner's party. Maybe the loser. Maybe I'm with you. I would go, I would go to the loser's no, party because he's going to have dad. so much support from the winner's party. But I'm, look, true. I'm not a mom. You would go to. I guess you're right. Yeah. I never both. thought about that. Yeah, she's going to go to both things or but whatever. The first one I'd go to is a loser party. Wait, do they have a loser party? She said, yeah. She, According to her, she said, yeah. Okay. So, I don't think Donna, we come back party. on Monday, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to be here, but come back and talk to these guys on Monday she, after a, one of your sons wins the Super Bowl, okay? Best moment of the show. I Wouldn't that be great? Both. Here's the thing. What? They're, they're all winners, especially the mom, because she did a great job raising and kids. And the dad, too. And the dad. Yes. We, we didn't see him, but yes, of course. Yes, that goes both on. of them. Yeah. Okay, that awesome. was fun. All right, this morning, bipartisan lawmakers are getting together for a night of jokes and roast. We have the highlights from the Washington Press Club's Foundation's annual congressional dinner. I promise you actually want to see this next. <laughs> really? Lawmakers can be funny. Some people might find it hard to believe, but some lawmakers are actually funny sometimes. <laughs> lawmakers from both sides of the aisle let loose at the Washington Press Club Foundation's annual congressional dinner last night. Don's a little skeptical about their humor, but they shared a lot of laughs as they roasted each other and sometimes themselves. Did you watch the uh, did you watch McCarthy during the speaker's vote? I know many of you uh, were in the halls of Congress during that vote. I haven't seen someone assume that many positions to appease the crazy Republicans since Stormy Daniels. Now, admittedly, I was I wasn't sure whether I'd be able to make it tonight. But my staff reminded me that hundreds, hundreds of reporters were attending this event. And magically, my schedule cleared right up. And I know everyone thinks Republicans aren't funny, but if you get a bunch of us together, we can be a real riot. And thanks again for having me with you tonight. If you like my remarks, my name is Raphael Warnock. If you didn't, I'm Senator Tim Scott. Good night, everybody. Maxwell Frost, that 25-year-old congressman, Nancy Mace said she had stretch marks that were older than he was. <laughs> so funny. Okay. That dress. Was beautiful. Yeah, was a, that was quite a dress. CNN Anyways. Newsroom. All right. Thanks for joining us this morning. We have no more jokes here. So we'll let you go. Right after this break. <laughs> that is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.